Welcome back to Montana Classical College. This is the third session of our course, Which Way, Western Man? Nationalism versus Globalism. And we will discuss Eric Maria Remarks' All Quiet on the Western Front and Ernst Jünger's Storm of Steel. Last time we discussed Kant's perpetual peace and Carl Schmitt's The Concept of the Political. Kant hopes for, and thinks that nature will inevitably guarantee, a tightly allied federation of Republican states. In this way, he hopes for war to be abolished, permanently. Strikingly, though, he stops short of arguing for a one-world government. He grants that different states have different moral personalities, and insists that a world state would be a soulless despotism. With this last remark about the danger posed by the world state, it almost appears as if Kant makes a small concession to Carl Schmitt. That is, he leaves the tiniest bit of breathing room for potential friends and enemies which, as we know in Schmidt's terms, means groups of humans who are at least potentially willing to physically kill their foes. Schmidt claimed that the concept of the political provides the basis for all moral seriousness. Without this basis, Schmidt fears that the world would be reduced to mere entertainment shared between customers and consumers. Today, we will discuss Remarque's novel All Quiet on the Western Front and Ernst Jünger's memoir, Storm of Steel. In a certain sense, we might say that Remark and Jünger continue the argument between Kant and Schmidt. Remark sides with Kant and the liberal vision of the future, whereas Jünger quite simply loves his nation and so wishes for it to remain distinct and apart from other nations, meaning that war is always a potentiality. And indeed, Jünger cautiously welcomes the possibility of war insofar as it opens the door for the high human possibility or psychological type of the warrior to emerge and display his virtues and excellence. So, let's examine Remarque's, let's first examine Remarque's case for why war should be eliminated, and then consider Jünger's powerful rejoinder. In the final concluding section, I will briefly sketch out why, despite Remarque's humanitarian hopes, the world is better off morally and spiritually if war between peoples remains a potentiality. So we turn to Remark. His novel, All Quiet on the Western Front, has been hailed by many, especially critics writing for large Western newspapers, as, quote, the greatest war novel of all time. In the United States, you will find it on almost any middle school's or high school's reading list. We must suspect, then, that it is one that contains within it a teaching that is largely supportive of the liberal world order. And indeed, it does not disappoint our rightly founded suspicion. The novel is tightly organized around one central theme or argument. War must be abolished forever. There are three main ways that I think Remarque tries to establish his claim. First, he lingers on the genuinely morbid, ugly, and heart-wrenching parts of war. Second, he claims that war necessarily turns men into depraved animals. And finally, he claims that wars do not occur between peoples, Rather, cruel elites dress their young men up in arbitrary uniform colors and compel them to fight over petty disagreements. So, of these themes of remark, we turn first to morbidity or, uh, and suffering and death. One of the earliest scenes in the book features the narrator, Paul Bomber, watching over his dear friend Kemmerich, who is slowly and painfully dying after having his leg amputated. That might be hard enough to bear, but the ugliness is intensified by the callousness of those around Kemmerich. His friend Mueller waits impatiently for Kemmerich to bequeath him his boots. 
the doctors wait impatiently for Kenmerk to die so that his bed can be used for someone else. Indeed, the doctors have to be bribed in order to give him painkillers at all. Remark wants us to think, how could we possibly put young men in a position where necessity presses upon them with so much force that they must wait like hyenas for a dying friend's boots? We see this ugliness spread throughout the book. Here are Remark's own words from a passage that is highly characteristic of ones we see all over the book. Quote, We see men living with their skulls blown open. We see soldiers run with their two feet cut off. They stagger on their splintered stumps into the next shell hole. A lance corporal crawls a mile and a half on his hands, dragging his smashed knee after him. Another goes to the dressing station, and over his clasped hands bulge his intestines. We see men without mouths, without jaws, without faces. We find one man who has held the artery of his arm in his teeth for two hours in order not to bleed to death. The sun goes down, night comes. The shells whine. Life is at an end. End quote. Similar statements are common throughout the book, though they come out most starkly while the narrator recovers from a ghastly wound in a Catholic hospital. Indeed, the remarks there may be even more gruesome than what I've quoted above. No one can deny to any veteran of a war like this that men suffered such things. And such details should surely make any leader hesitate or at least approach any war in full awareness of the costs that are demanded of his people. In this way, Remark makes what is probably his strongest argument, though I may try to show at the end why it is not sufficient. Now, however this may be, Remark suggests that such morbidity is not by any means the only cost associated with war. We turn now to his argument about depravity, or how war turns men into animals. All quiet on the Western Front is replete with comparisons of men to animals. The narrator insists that such comparisons do not remain merely within the realm of simile or likeness. Rather, he seems to hold that men become depraved and undignified through participating in war, and thus become animals through no fault of their own. Brave men and cowardly, just and unjust, noble and base, all alike are compelled to become less than human through war. The narrator brings this theme out early in the book, gently at first, and with repeatedly more force as the novel progresses. Here's the first mention of comparing men to animals or describing them as animals. Quote, at the sound of the first droning of the shells, we rush back, in one part of our being, a thousand years. By the animal instinct that is awakened in us, we are led and protected. End quote. This passage almost makes it sound as if the return to instinct is a kind of enhancement of our ordinary capacities. But later, the narrator interprets things differently. We have become, quote, we have become wild beasts. We do not fight. We defend ourselves against annihilation. End quote. Note that he does not say he is like a wild beast. Rather, he says he is a wild beast. The crushing pressure of external circumstance has begun to transform these men, according to Remark. Here's another quotation. Quote, it has transformed us into unthinking animals in order to give us the weapon of instinct. It has reinforced us with dullness so that we do not go to pieces before the horror which would overwhelm us if we had clear, conscious thought. It has awakened in us a sense of comradeship, so that we escape the abyss of a, <clears throat> so that we escape the 
abyss of solitude. It has lent us the indifference of wild creatures, so that in spite of all, we perceive the positive in every moment and store it up as a reserve against the onslaught of nothingness. End quote. Here, the narrator describes the awakened animal's instincts as well as self-protection, or as self-protection against the worst possible circumstances. I wonder, though, if he goes too far in his description of what it is like to be an animal. That is, he seems to think that animals live terrifying lives with precious moments in between, existentially torturous moments. This, I think, is a mistaken view. It cuts against another mistaken view that nature is just a beautiful and peaceful place where nothing bad happens. But the narrator forgets. Animals play and joyfully develop their inborn powers that they feel in their blood. He forgets as well the capacity to be a warrior may be an inborn potentiality of man that some men feel uh, a need to pursue in their blood. Okay, so we've talked about morbidity and the way that war turns men into animals. Now, let's turn to Remarque's third argument, that war is arbitrary or that it just simply doesn't need to happen. After making his case that war is excessively morbid and that men become less than human, Remark tries to intensify the power of both of these claims by saying that the suffering caused by them is utterly needless and indeed arbitrary. The narrator suggests that no one who has actually experienced war would advocate for it. Those, like the narrator's old teacher Cantoric, become cheerleaders and tell boys to go to war in a way that costs him nothing. Prior to the experience of war, the narrator associated Cantoric and those of his generation with, quote, great insight, and a more humane wisdom. But the first death we saw shattered this belief. The horror of war shattered their belief in the wisdom and therewith the authority of the older generations. It is this reflection on the fallibility of their forebears which prepares further assaults on the integrity of any political leader who sends young men to die in war. The narrator and his friends agree that the wrong men do the fighting, they suppose that the generals and ministers of two countries ought to fight things out with clubs, with the survivors claiming victory. This naive argument makes some false assumptions about war. It assumes, like Kant does in Perpetual Peace and as Woodrow Wilson does in his uh, World War I war message, that war is fought between rulers or leaders of states and not between peoples. Furthermore, the thought experiment that Remark, that Remark makes assumes that states are not trying to gain very much through war. That is, if Germany wants to control all of France's territory, will the French suddenly give up Paris now that a few ministers are dead? Or will they just go back on their word? Or, rather, will they go back on their word and defend their territory with the full force of their army? The thought experiment depends on an abstraction from the reality that space is owned by those with the physical power to hold it. Killing a few generals does not significantly alter this reality. The thought experiment of remark here is childish or naive. Much later, the narrator and his friends, have much more, after they have much more experience of war, they permit themselves to ask, why do wars start at all? One man ventures the answer that one country offends another, to which a cheeky character responds, quote, I am not offended. Perhaps I shall go home, end quote. The group rallies around this answer and elaborates. Now, just why would a French blacksmith 
or a French shoemaker, for that matter, want to attack us. No, it is merely the rulers, end quote. This answer would be at home with men who have been habituated to seeing themselves principally as consenting individuals. That is, they feel they have a right not to have any obligations or duties placed on them contrary to those they have actively chosen to take on. They don't see that they are born with an obligation to defend their nation. And furthermore, as the last quotation suggests, these individuals will find their fulfillment through economic or commercial activities, being shoemakers or blacksmiths. Political life by this account, seems to be reducible to mere economic life. And this assumption leads to the idea that borders and peoples are arbitrary expressions of power designed to benefit the ruling class. So, to briefly restate what I take to be the argument of the book, or sorry, to briefly restate what I take the argument of the book to be, the horror of war, the depravity it induces, and the arbitrary reasons that bring about these evils lead the narrator to claim that he will devote his life to doing anything he can to put an end to war. Remark intensifies the emotional punch of his argument through having his narrator die on the last day of the war. Okay, so there is the case that uh, Remark makes. It's not without some merit. However, we're going to turn to another man Ernst Jünger, the author of Storm and Steel, uh, to see a contrary position, a position that maybe we don't hear very much about today uh, in regular colleges or universities. So let's try to take Ernst Jünger's position as seriously as possible. All right. Now, many might try to associate Remark's humanitarian position on war with the idea of love. Remark must be a lover of humanity if he wants war to go away. However, I think this is a mistake, and so I'm going to approach Jünger from a somewhat unusual angle and try to show how he understands love. Many people today assume or think that men of the right don't understand love or that they are filled with hate. In Storm of Steel, however, I will argue that Jünger shows us through his actions and thoughts that some of the deepest forms of love and human attachment will be lost if Remark and Kant's vision of the world is allowed to win. As Jünger puts it, time only strengthens my conviction that it was a good and strenuous life, that the war, for all of its destructiveness, was an incomparable schooling of the heart. So, let's learn what Jünger can show us about the human heart. I propose that we look at Jünger's love of his nation, his love of and for his enemies, his love of and for his friends, and finally, his love of himself. First, we turned to Jünger's love for his nation. To see Jünger's love of his nation, you only have to look at his deeds. That suffices. However, if you want to hear what Jünger has to say about that love, you have to read the 1929 translation of Storm of Steel by Basil Creighton, offered, as it so happens, by Mystery Growth. You can find them on Twitter, as opposed to the Penguin edition. Now, this isn't just a plug for uh, a Twitter user. This is, there are massive differences between the Creighton translation and the Penguin one, precisely because some passages are omitted in the later editions of Storm of Steel. And I think some of these uh, earlier omitted passages are revealing or illuminating. So we're going to talk about them now. So in this brief section on Jünger's love of the nation, I want to let Jünger speak for himself, because his words are so much more powerful than mine can ever be. 
Throughout the rest of this younger section, I won't rely as heavily on quotations once we move past this part on the nation. So here is a remarkable passage about life that is absent from the mainline Penguin edition. This comes in the preface for the English edition. Um, quote, It was strange, for example, to hear at night the cry of the partridges from the waste fields, or at dawn, the careless song of the lark as it rose high above the trenches. Did it not seem that life itself was speaking out of the confidence of its savage and visionary heart, knowing very well that in its more secret and essential depths it had nothing to fear from even the deadliest of wars, and going its way quite unaffected by the superficial interchange of peace and war? End quote. Younger has stared into Vulcan's cauldron, and yet he does not turn away in horror. Indeed, in the midst of death, all around him, he somehow catches a glimpse of life, or nature, or the eternal order of things. Indeed, life will not be extinguished by war. And as Younger says in another, in another passage unavailable to Penguin readers near the end of his book, quote, Hardened as scarcely another generation ever was in fire and flame, we could go into life as though from the anvil into friendship, love, politics, professions, and into all that destiny had in store. It is not every generation that is so hard, end quote. That is to say, Jünger's individual life was not shattered or broken, but rather, as he sees it, it was perfected. Here's one more quotation that follows almost on the heels of the last quote. Today, we cannot understand the martyrs who threw themselves into the arena, transport that had lifted them even before their deaths beyond humanity, beyond every phase of pain and fear. Their faith no longer exercises a compelling force. When once it is no longer possible to understand how a man can give life for his country, and the time will come, then, <clears throat> then all is over that with that faith also, and the idea of the fatherland is dead. And then, perhaps, we shall be envied, as we envy the saints, their inward and irresistible strength. End quote. Here, though, like Schmidt, Jünger seems to wonder if the political, or maybe as he's more concerned with, the case of the warrior, or the warrior's ability to defend the fatherland, that can be extinguished as a human possibility. It might only be looked at through history, and history is increasingly written by people who couldn't begin to understand the inner workings of a heroic heart. And yet, Younger ends Storm of Steel with the following cry, quote, We stand in memory of the dead holy to us, and we believe ourselves entrusted with the true and spiritual welfare of people. We stand for what will be and for what has been. Though forced without and barbaric in, commemorate in somber clouds. Yet so long as the as the blade of a sword will strike a spark in the night, may it be said, Germany lives, and Germany shall never go under. End quote. Wow. Now that we have heard Younger describe life and the love of his nation in his own words. Let's turn to where Jünger discusses the love he has for his enemies. 
The basis of Younger's love for his enemies is respect or admiration for impressive deeds, skills, and resoluteness. Thus, he does not love all of his enemies equally. It may be that he thinks that human dignity has to be won. It is not innate or given. Now, Storm of Steel is filled with praise for enemies. We cannot even attempt to catalog all of it here. One of his first and most striking thoughts on the matter is as follows. Quote, Throughout the war, it was always my endeavor to view my opponent without animus and to form an opinion of him as man on the basis of the courage he showed. I would always try to seek him out in combat and kill him, and I expected nothing else from him. But never did I entertain mean thoughts of him. When prisoners fell into my hands later on, I felt responsible for their safety and would always do everything in my power for them. End quote. He bears no festering resentment. He doesn't look for mercy. Indeed, throughout the work, he evinces much the opposite outlook. He notes late in the book that the Scots showed by their fighting that they, quote, were real men. And in turn, a mighty Scot is so impressed by Junger that he found him after the war and wrote him a letter. Junger relies on a kind of trans-political judgment of man. He knows a courageous man when he sees him and takes for granted that there is cross-cultural intelligibility when it comes to such judgments. We should note as well that Junger does not kill his enemies in cold blood. There are three successive episodes late in the work where he's faced with such a choice. First, he encounters a wounded man crouching on the ground. He's an officer who produces a photograph which he held up to Junger. Quote, Junger says, I saw him on it, surrounded by numerous family." all standing on a terrace. It was a plea from another world. I hope, I hope he got to see his homeland again, end quote. Second, near the end of an exchange, Junger ran into an English officer in an open jacket and loose tie. He grabbed him and hurled him against a pile of sandbags. An old white-haired major behind Junger shouted, kill the swine. Junger thought there was no point. Those are his words. Third, during the Great Battle, Junger, after driving most British away from this part of the field, finds himself inside of a British shelter, where a man is fitting bullets into a belt over his knee. Instead of killing him on the spot, he says, Come here, hands up. The man flees, and not knowing what he will do, Junger throws a grenade at him. Now, what are we to make of these three episodes? Junger is tough as nails, and he's not a stranger to violence. Indeed, uh, near the beginning of the book, he talks about being a follower of the gospel of force. But he seems to take no pleasure in killing for its own sake. Perhaps in the middle example that we examined above, where he says there is simply no point in killing that man, he holds the man that he sees as harmless, or that he isn't worth wasting a bullet on. At any rate, we might say that Younger sees needless cruelty as something not fit for a man who understands his own worth. For the overly cruel man may be attempting to confirm his worth by imagining how terrifying he looks in the eyes of another. That last sentence, I think that's something Foki and Dionysus said to me at some point, so I, I give him credit for that. Okay, let's then turn to Junger's love of his friends, now that we've seen his love for his enemies. And we'll also see uh, his friends return to love in spades. So, Younger loves his comrades. Love is not incompatible with self-respect and manliness. And we note 
that while he is warm with friends, he still distinguishes them hierarchically on the basis of their excellence. His friend Tebby is killed at one of the battles of Cambry, and he remarks, A friend of mine with noble qualities, with whom I joy, sorrow, and danger for years now, who only a few moments ago had called out some pleasantry to me, had his life taken by a tiny piece of lead. I grasp the fact. Unfortunately, it's all too true. End quote. But Younger doesn't just help the strong. When it comes to his friends, he also helps the weak. He pulls weaker comrades as close as he can to his own level of excellence. Quote, as we raced on, I gave directions to the lost, pulled some men out of shell holes, threatened others who wanted to lie down, kept shouting my name, and so brought my platoon, as if by miracle, back. Now, throughout the work, Junger records the noble deeds of his comrades and makes sure that they are reported to those higher up so that his men receive well-deserved rewards. He does so with great joy and enthusiasm and without any envy. Of course, Junger enjoys receiving honor and he receives a great deal of it, but we never seem to see him actively motivated during battle at the prospect of getting medals. He seems more concerned being a good man. And by becoming a good man, Junger finds himself followed by his men, not only on the basis of rank, but also on character. Indeed, when he has to choose men for an especially dangerous assignment, many of them volunteer, and those who are not chosen, quote, were almost in tears over their rejection, end quote. And in his greatest moments of peril, when he can no longer move himself because of grave injuries, Junger was, quote, not forsaken, uh, for he says his companions, quote, were keeping an eye on me, and soon fresh efforts were made to rescue me. Junger depends on others, but it was through his overwhelming virtue that he attracted such noble and able helpers. Now, there's a lot more to say about that in a lot more passages, but that gives you a good taste. And so we then turn to Junger's love of and respect for himself. One way in which we today do not respect ourselves is by our refusal to trust our judgment about things. Indeed, by our refusal even to make judgments sometimes. We say, who am I to judge when it comes to movies or music or ways of life? We might note how sure of his judgments Younger is about his friends and his enemies that we saw above. He does not waver. Our fear today might be that this lack of wavering or his resoluteness of judgment would make Junger rigid and doctrinaire or incapable of learning. But this is far from the case. For without attempting our own judgments of things, as good or bad, noble and base, just and unjust, how can we hope to understand the world or respect ourselves? For we, have, for we would have no basis from which to do so. And Junger is willing to recalibrate his judgment when he sees that he is occasionally wrong, such as when he learns the hard way the German artillery tends to shoot short at night. Now, one of the most striking and thematic thoughts that Younger says is, quote, You can't say you really know a man if you haven't seen him under conditions of danger. End quote. There is no equivocation here. Danger tests the connection between our speeches and deeds, and it does so as sternly as anything can. We often say to ourselves that we would die for those we love. Today, almost none of us know in the strictest sense that this is true. Because of Junger's outrageous stormtrooping deeds in the trenches of World War I, 
he knows much more clearly than most of us can ever hope to what kind of man he is. That is, he knows that when he says something, he has the strength and self-possession to turn it into a deed. Something Younger is sure of is the value of freedom. Near the end of his tale, Younger recounts a doomed retreat. He's taken a hit to the lungs. All around him, Germans are surrendering to the British. Quote, there was only the choice between captivity and a bullet. End quote. Younger respects himself, and that respect is contingent upon his being free. He does not slavishly pursue mere self-preservation in the hands of his foes. Instead, he shoots the nearest enemy soldier and takes off. In liberal societies, it is sometimes said that the love of oneself is so compelling that we have a right to do anything. We could have easily excused and not blamed Younger for surrendering, but Younger is not the kind of person who will submit. He will not be put in captivity. Perhaps for such a specimen, for such a specimen, captivity is death. Younger is thrown, and throws himself into the fiercest fighting of World War One. He comes out on the other side, having grown beautiful under harsh conditions. Younger is filled with, <clears throat> or young, younger can drink and carouse with the best, and he is brilliant. We often hear of him reading. Indeed, on nearly the last page of the book, we hear of him reading Tristram Shandy. He loses, or he greatly laments losing a heavy copy of Don Quixote earlier in the book. He's a complete human being whose overflowing of health allows him to take care of himself and others. In the West, we have lived in an age of security. Perhaps we will begin to long for the extraordinary. But if we want to begin correctly, we have to learn how to love, how to love deeply, beautifully, and not indiscriminately. Now, here are some concluding thoughts to bring Remarque and Younger back into the general themes of the course. A sub-argument that Remarque employs to demonstrate the arbitrariness of war is his suggestion that, once you get to know them, all peoples are pretty much the same. This is not true. That is to say, different and unique ways of life emerge throughout the world as various responses to certain types of, or of certain types of people to varying external conditions. These ways of life are for the sake of some good, and we know well that the goods valued by one people are often at odds with the goods valued by another. The narrator seems to suggest, then, that some kind of universal understanding or agreement on the good is possible if selfish rulers lose the power to declare war and hand over power to the people, who are essentially good, or at least not vicious, and who would be rational enough not to send themselves to war as we discussed last time. In this way, the narrator points to something like universal liberal democracy as the key to ending war. That is, it is the form of government that is the fundamental cause of war. This is a mistake, something Remark ignores, and something that most liberals and conservatives ignore today, is that the cause of many wars and new ideologies is the desire to destroy liberalism. From its very inception, or from the very inception of liberalism, different groups have assembled to oppose liberal democracy. The Holy Alliance, that is, European monarchs, got together to try to snuff out democracy after the horrors of the French Revolution. Communism appeared as another moral response to what Marx and others saw as the moral depravity, even if a necessary stage, 
of liberal capitalism. Fascism appeared when young men in Germany and elsewhere looked around in horror at the thought that liberalism and communism might try to extinguish the seriousness of the world by eliminating the very possibility of a fatherland or a people. And in our day, we've seen Saeed Khatab write a pamphlet on the America I have seen in order to encourage the Islamic world to oppose modernity and the United States in a spiritual and military struggle. All that is to say, serious people from the right and the left, from religious fanatics to secular nihilists, have opposed the promotion of liberalism so vehemently that they have risked and sacrificed their lives to prevent its spread. As Carl Schmitt and others have pointed out, liberalism attempts to remove the friend-enemy distinction from political life. Schmitt seems to think that, if such a thing is possible, then moral seriousness will vanish from life and reduce life to a hedonic quest for entertainment. Aren't you most proud of your accomplishments that required you to expend all of your effort? That is, we admire accomplishments that require struggle, that require the defeat of mighty obstacles. We call those who regularly endure and overcome such mighty trials heroes. To extinguish war is to prevent the excellence of one of the highest human types, the warrior, from expressing his excellence. Here is sort of one last final arrow uh, at remark. The logic of liberalism as it is presently conceived, and I think it's very much shown uh, in Remark's novel, is to bring about a world state. Academics like Alexander Wendt have written articles and given YouTube talks on why a world state is both inevitable and desirable. But we know that a homogenized world state will be a technocratic slum world. Most political communities are what Moldbug would call adaptive fictions. They accommodate their stories and actions to changing circumstances in order to persist indefinitely if possible. Just think of woke capital as a primary example. The U.S. just absorbs potential enemy ideas like communism and incorporates shallow, toothless versions of them into its existing institutions. A world state, not wishing to perish, will naturally not allow powerful dissenting ideas to get off of the ground. And technology will allow new and more powerful forms of surveillance to take place. The coronavirus has already led some in the West to consider putting microchips in people. A world state of this kind would not only extinguish war, but perhaps even the possibility of philosophy in the strictest sense as the quest to understand nature. We'll talk about all this more later. So this sort of concludes a look at uh, a liberal account of what the world state could look like or pointers towards it and rejoinders against it. Uh, and so next time we'll start to take up the communist argument um, for a world state and then oppose it uh, with others. So I look forward to talking next time.